Blog Talk Radio. Uh, it's an honor and no pun intended a pleasure to have on a judge from the North Carolina Court of Appeals. He's formerly, of course, of the uh, American Civil Liberties Union, the ACLU. He's Christopher Brooks. And, Your Honor, it's a pleasure to have you on. I hope all is well with you and your family, sir. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back on. It's good talking to you again. I hope the same is true for you and your family. We're hanging in there. I mean, uh, 2020 has been a hell of a year, it seems to me. It has. And, and with that being said, Your Honor, uh, you know, we wanted to have you on and thank you uh, for the short notice to to come on and, and talk to talk about someone you well familiar with in your uh, your years and um, being an attorney and, and and otherwise in the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the former associate justice of the Supreme Court here. Um you know, I, one of the things I don't like, and I think, Your Honor, we've talked about this before, um, when you have situations where political people, um, for or against whatever side you're on, um, the, the sides do this thoughts and prayers. I, I, I don't even use that term because a lot of people use it and they really don't pray, but that's a whole different topic for another show uh but thoughts and prayers and you've heard the president say some things and you heard um the republicans say some things the democrats as well in terms of paying homage to her but as as someone who has been in this realm for some time and studied her and know some of her rulings uh and her descents talk about her her legacy she you know, one of the things that people are starting to talk about that she should have been talked about anyway is that she wasn't biased for women's rights. She was standing up for women's rights. And there's a difference. When you only have one woman at the table, right, there has to be some dissent on their behalf. And, yeah. you know, not even the, the Roe versus Wade stuff, but just – a woman's right to choose specifically, uh, you know, in terms of uh, equal pay for work for women. These are things that are should be humane anyway. It it, it goes beyond um, those the, those words that these Supreme Court justices put in, even in yourself, like put in place. It, it's a moral thing. So talk about her legacy for women's rights. And even standing up for men's rights, there were some cases where she actually was a dissent in favor of men's rights. A a historical case, if you remember to talk about. Talk about her legacy, sir. Well, I mean, I think her legacy, first and foremost, is that she's a a legal visionary who really changed uh, American constitutional law and um, did so uh, in a way that helped us to – sweep away a lot of the vestiges of sex discrimination. And I use sex discrimination as uh, the word and discrimination based on sex as the term instead of women's equality because of the exact point that you just made. One of the cases uh, that she was exceptionally clever as a litigator, you know, one of the cases uh, that was brought early on was a challenge to the fact that a man could not get a caregiver allowance from yeah. the government. The, the government right. was paying out 
caregiver allowances to women, but a man who I think in that instance was caring for um, his disabled spouse could not get that allowance. And that turned on sort of sex stereotypes about women being caregivers and men not being caregivers. And, you know, she highlighted the fact that those sex stereotypes harm all of us. Uh, in that instance, they very much harmed that man because he was not able to be treated equally by the government based on his caregiver status. Um, but also, you know, highlighting the sort of like putting women on a pedestal and saying that women's place is in the home is not only harmful to women, but the rest of society misses out on exceptionally talented women like Ruth Bader Ginsburg when we put them in that sort of box. So to me, first and foremost, she's a, she's a legal visionary, but also I'll, you know, I'll add, um, and you know, her role in ensuring uh, equality of the sexes and, and women's equality has gotten a lot of conversation. You, you know, uh, LA, we have talked about LGBT rights before on the show. Uh, Though she did not write any of the LGBT opinions that were key LGBT opinions, you know, Obergefell, which said um, you uh, constitutionally had to have marriage equality, the freedom to marry for folks in same-sex relationships, but more uh, was written by Justice Kennedy. More recently, Bostock was written by Justice Gorsuch, which said that Title VII, which prohibited discrimination based on sex, prohibited discrimination based on sexual orientation and transgender status as well because you had to take into account sex to discriminate against somebody against on sexual orientation or trans status. Uh, none of those arguments would have been possible without Justice Ginsburg before she was a justice, her scholarship and her litigation because she really pointed the way towards a broader understanding of what constitutes sex discrimination and not only did she point the way to that, she was so successful in pointing the way to that that Justice Gorsuch, who is obviously a Trump appointee and has a very conservative re reputation, wrote the opinion in Bostock that said it was discrimination based on sex to discriminate against people based on the fact that they're a member of the LGBT commu T community in the employment context. So um, her dissents merit a lot of conversation as well, but the real successes that she had before and after joining the Supreme Court, you know, merit a lot of discussion as well. You know, one of the things that I appreciate about her is that sometimes we get lost in um, the stature or the levels of struggle, if you will. So meaning that it, if if a woman – struggled at a poverty level but she made it should not be different than Justice Ginsburg juggling a job and being a mom and going through law school trying to find um you know being a law clerk and and rising above it the, the struggles are di different times and situations but there's still struggles and i think that's one of the things that gets lost with her talk about that the fact that remember uh in in this and you know as much as you could talk in, in this male driven white male really driven uh country yep. that we have um that she she was a mom like she was trying to do what she needed to do to get to law school and everything else and yet she still 
persevered and then her her opinions and her her vision as you said reflected that so it wasn't so much a feminist standpoint even though she had said she is a feminist it was more so about uh the the opportunity um to 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 be able to to get to that level and the struggle of it yeah i mean her story uh, at Harvard Law School is um, amazing. You know, her law school dean, she was one of nine women out of approximately 500 uh, people at Harvard Law School when she studied there. Her dean, the dean of the law school, you know, asked sort of rhetorically of the women, including Justice Ginsburg, you know, what are you doing here taking the spot of a man uh, at, wow. uh, at Harvard Law? Um, she uh, gave birth to her daughter um, uh, and raised her daughter uh, while being a law student. Um, her husband, Marty, um, uh, had uh, testicular cancer when uh, they were in law school together. So she was caring not only for her daughter, Jane, but she was also caring for Marty during the course of um, uh, her studies. Uh, at Harvard Law and not only caring for Marty and nursing him back to health, but also taking notes for him at class and typing up his notes so he, because he was in law school as well, could um, make it through. And she did all of those things, and she finished first in her class in law school. Wow. And, yet when she, and yet when she graduated, she struggled to find a job um, just on account of her sex. Um, and, you know, uh, I think that what you see and I think what you're pointing to is exactly right. I think that that gave her an understanding of the practical challenges that people face. Um, and, you know, in a lot of ways, she was, a, you know, a privileged person because she came from a relatively affluent background. Right. But she had real challenges right. on account of her sex, of account of her sex. But I think it made her understand the challenges um, that people of color had, um, that low wealth individuals had, that religious minorities had. Um, I think that her experience and that the LGBTQ community had, the struggles that she went through informed her understanding of those struggles. You know, one of my, just from a straight turn of phrase standpoint, you know, there we've talked a little bit about Shelby County before, um, which dealt with. Um, uh, you know, uh, whether uh, uh, counties and jurisdictions that had previously been under what was the preclearance requirement, where if they were going to change their voting rules, they had to get clearance from the Department of Justice or a federal court. And the Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision authored by Chief Justice Roberts said that that was unconstitutional and that the South had changed and et cetera, et cetera. And Chief Justice and, and Justice Ginsburg wrote the principal dissent, and you know what she said was: first, the Voting Rights Act is one of the crown jewels of American civil rights legislation, and it's been markedly successful. And she analogized the majority scrapping the preclearance requirement to throwing your umbrella out during the course of a rainstorm because you hadn't been getting wet during the rainstorm, not recognizing mm. that, you know, the umbrella was the thing that was keeping you from getting wet. So, you know, um, uh, you know, I, I really think that there, it just is a demonstration, I think, of 
the fact uh, that she really understood the practical challenges uh, that that litigants faced uh, frequently. There's so many instances of that that are plain in her writing and jurisprudence. If you're just joining us, we're talking with uh, a Judge Christopher Brook, of course, from the uh, North Carolina Appeals Courts here on the Bastion News Radio Show and the Bastion News Radio Network, WCOM, in Chapel Hill, uh, North Carolina. Um, Your Honor, when you – here's it, and again, if I ask questions, you ask to the best of your ability. Obviously, you're on the bench. Um but you get you 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 bring up a great point about her. The fact that she had this practicality about her, that she's had those experiences. She was the she she had that the you know parent raising a child, trying to be and again, like you said, top of her class, um, in in law school. But she had that struggle, even if she came from affluent. She she didn't get it based on the fact that she was a woman. Um, and then you have outside of Judge Clarence Thomas, which some of us, some of us African Americans say he hadn't been black anyway. But um, uh, you have you have a court now with Sotomayor and 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 and, and Justice Hagan. There, prior to them, and she was there, and you have those experiences from men that maybe didn't have that. The Judge Kavanaugh's that had. Of privileged situations, does that make their descent more profound? In your opinion, if you've lived it, you know if you if if you've been where she's been, and as a woman, you know you carrying this baby. A man can't carry a baby. He can help uh, take care of it, but she's got to carry it and take care of it, and go to law school and try to get the grades and everything else. Does that make it more profound with her descent as opposed to some of the other judges that uh, um, maybe didn't have those experiences? Well, here's what I'll say about that is, you know, and and as you sort of alluded to as a sitting judge, you know, I have to be thoughtful about how I respond to to questions, right? Sure. Um, here's, Here's what I'll say. You know, in my job, you know, the first thing we do is we look really hard and try to understand the facts and we try to master the law and figure out where they lead, right? And really try to logically reason our way through the challenge, the, the legal challenge that's in front of us. Um, I, um, working as a judge, but also prior to working as a judge, um, really, really value the opinions of my colleagues just as a general matter. And when somebody disagrees with me, I really want to understand why that is. Um, And even if somebody agrees with me but has a slightly different take, I'm very interested in what that is as well. And that can manifest itself in 8 million different ways. You know, I was not a trial court judge before being appointed to the bench by Governor Cooper. I'm very interested in talking – you know, if if I write an opinion and a trial court judge says, well, this could be a little bit clearer. I – you know, when I was on the trial court bench, I wouldn't have exactly understood – what you're saying there, I really value that experience and take that advice to heart. Sometimes we might not agree, but a lot of times I say, gosh, you got it, right? And I want to take your experience to heart. Um, You know, there, as you allude to, are experiences that women have that men do not have. Um, And, you know, Justice Ginsburg's um, 
litigate, you know, you know, women's experience, for example, being sexually harassed in the workplace is not something that a lot of men are going to have a lot of experience with. So listening to those experiences is very valuable. You know, obviously I'm a white guy. Um, Listening to um, people of color talk about workplace experiences that they have or challenges that they have with law enforcement. I, I think that we all stand to benefit from leaning forward and listening very, very closely when someone who has had a different experience um, has a different background, a different perspective, um, uh, brings that to bear and uh, lays out you know, their thoughts on a particular matter. Does that mean we're always going to agree or I'm always going to be persuaded by that? No, it doesn't. That, that's a reality. But I think it does mean that I need to take the time to grapple with that and try to wrap my head around the point that's being made, uh, especially when um, there's a particular perspective being brought to bear that, that I might uh, not have uh, firsthand experience with. That's a, a great answer. It, and and your honor, I, uh, just to stay on that, two final questions. Uh, uh, the first one being, for me, I'm speaking for me, and this is in the airways. For me, I, it's going to be interesting to see. And there are different circumstances. When Justice Scalia passed, uh, there were a lot of people on both sides, right, that said, you know, yeah. talked about, that, you know, he, he was a conservative. But, you know, he stood on some things that Democrats or liberals would have said, you know, bravo on that. Um, but they talked about his intellectual mind, his, his, his mind, and all those who worked under him, um, uh, that uh, learned under him, um, and how, uh, you know, great and, and direct in terms of his, his uh, rulings and, and uh, was. And I I have I've I've heard some of that from one side, I haven't heard it from the other. Uh, obviously it's gonna be political with there's this is a presidential um year. Um the other side wants to nominate someone which would really shift the balance of, you know, um deemed as you know, um conservative and, and liberal six three from what people say. Right with Breyer and, and all that you know and all that, but the, but yep. the, do you think that she is getting uh, the same sort of equal at that on that theme uh, of respect and honor, and ultimately as the history books go on and we're all dead and gone, what would be her legacy, her her, her most uh, impactful and profound legacy? Um, I, I mean, I think. The short answer to your question is she getting the 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 respect that she deserves i mean I think the answer is no um i you know I think it is, and there are as you suggest many different reasons for this, and there's blame enough to go around, but you know we're sitting here on the Monday after she passed away on a Friday talking about the sort of political implications and the implications on the court 
um, instead of talking just fully about her legacy, right? Because the conversation mm-hmm. has already right. moved on beyond that. And that already. Was the case in reg- <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. And I mean, uh, there was a similar dynamic at play when Justice Scalia passed, where, you know, the politics intruded very, very quickly, and there wasn't really time to, to, to just appreciate uh, what a towering jurist. Um, uh, uh, you know, uh, both had been, you know, uh, agree or disagree with Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg. Um, obviously, they're two of the most significant lawyers and justices of their time. Um, and their service to our country is, you know, is consequential and, and merits um, reflection and some time to consider, right? I do think that that ultimately Justice Ginsburg's legacy is actually summed up pretty well by Justice Scalia. Justice Scalia referred to to, uh, Justice Ginsburg as the Thurgood Marshall of women's rights, Um, Mm. just as as Thurgood Marshall really was uh, the intellectual force along with many other people but was one of the key intellectual players in litigation uh, that – um, helped to dismantle segregation um, uh, via cases like Brown v. Board of Education. Um, uh, uh, Justice Ginsburg was similarly a uh, similarly important intellectual force in litigation. Uh, you know, we made reference to uh, cases about you know sex, essentially sex stereotyping and caregiving. Uh, things, but also going onto the court. She's the reason that uh, women, they're female cadets at the Virginia, Virginia Military Institute now, um, because she wrote that opinion, holding that denying women the right to study uh, and attend VMI was impermissible sex discrimination. Um, you know, much like uh, Thurgood Marshall, uh, really struck hammer blows against racial segregation. Um, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and then Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg struck hammer blows again and again about uh, against sexual uh, sex discrimination and in particular uh, uh, about uh, uh, laws that uh, unfairly um, uh, impacted uh, women uh, in our nation. I I agree with you, and and, and I think that um, it, it, I guess. I slightly think that uh, Justice Scalia got uh, maybe because he was Chief Justice, but uh, he got a little more time to. They talked about the brilliance of him, uh, and you're right. I mean, it's just a week. It, it, you know, she just passed on uh, this past weekend, so maybe some more of that comes out. But uh, uh, quite, quite a uh, a woman with a lot of spunk and a lot of energy, and and those who are, were affected. Um, in a positive way in terms of uh, women and those other cases uh, are certainly um, are appreciating and respecting her at this, this point in time. Uh, Judge Brooke, listen, I appreciate your time as always. Thanks for the short uh, notice. I really appreciate you and your insight. Uh, I know it's a tough situation. I know you love uh, 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 Judge Ginsburg's, but uh, thank you so much for uh, coming on this evening. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. It's always good to talk to you. I'm glad you're doing all right. Hang in there. You too. Appreciate you. And you and your uh, family, be be careful. Will do.
telling each other we're the one We would make love at the drop of a hat Remember that? Yeah I remember you and me Places in it you can be Now the strangers in the night Awkward in the dark Oh baby, do you want to make it could be doing anything else that yet you've decided to check in with us. 646-929-0130, the number to get in touch with us right now to get into any discussion we may have. And we got a lot. We're going to get to it. Uh, if you have any questions, you can hit us there. Um, and of course, um, you always can reach out to us by email at labachelor40 at gmail.com or um, certainly you can hit us up at Pad Nation on Facebook. We're live on Facebook now and um, or LA Bachelor as well. 
Twitter, Pad, Pad Nation, too. I want to bring in my first guest. He is a licensed relationship therapist. Uh, of course, uh, he has been featured on Cosmopolitan uh, 51 First Dates podcast and the DBS podcast. Good to have him on uh, for the first time. He is Trey H. Hennis. And Trey, listen, I appreciate you. You, you said don't call you doctor, so I, I may call you Dr. Trey just to play on it a little bit. Um, but nevertheless, we, pre- we appreciate you coming on this evening, sir. Fantastic. Absolute pleasure to be here. Absolute pleasure. So I, I wanted to bring you on. We, we're doing a series, um, and it, we can't get it all in one show, about black love. Black love in terms of two people, a spouse, you know, um, uh, male, female, otherwise, and, and certainly um, love of self, which could hinder a lot of relationships, I would think, in your profession you see. But in, in terms of the origin of the issues that black men and women have in this society, and I, I got all the stats. We could throw that around all day, you know, marriage and percentages and interracial, day, all that stuff is in front of me. But I want to go to you and ask you what, in your professional opinion, whether it be some of your patients or just in your studies, is sort of the the core, the origin, the decline, not only just of marriages, but this this relationship we call uh, between black men and black women. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, I think there are a few different components. You know, if we talk about the breakdown of marriage, you know, the relationship between black men and black women, I think one of the first things you have to take into consideration is technology. You know, the age of information uh, has essentially changed dating, marriage, the ideologies of marriage, the paradigms of long-term commitment and monogamy. It's just completely changed the game. In addition to that, the Western world, every year we become more progressive with the paradigms of what monogamy means. You know, we've seen the rise of polyamory, and that is when you and your partner decide to be in relationships with other people while still being in relationships with each other. We've seen the rise of internet dating and app dating where you can essentially date with anonymity and no one really knows that you're married or or in a relationship. Um, And we've seen the acceptance of essentially uh, marrying who you want to marry. The good thing is that there's still a large percentage of, uh, you know, 85% of black men are still marrying black wives. Uh, 9% have a white spouse, 3% have Hispanic, and uh, the other 3% have other. I don't really know what that means. Um, but essentially, <laughs> technology is, is slowly tearing apart, you know, institutionalized monogamy and marriage that we've seen for, for decades and centuries. Well, where does that come from, though? I mean, let's let's go back to the marriage part. As you, you mentioned, um, the decline, the numbers in marriage, I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you know, only 29% of uh, African-Americans are married. And that's down from four years ago. Um, so you talked about, you know, online dating and those things and, and being able to be uh, sort of secret in what you're you're doing. But there has to be an origin of why you're doing it. Why, if you're married, that you decide as a black man and woman that you decide that you want to step out of your marriage 
and and start another relationship with another man or another woman um, or whatever. Um, is the core value gone from from black marriages, from black people in terms of when they come together in a relationship? Are our are, are core values going away? And if so, is it because of the technology, the online dating, the, the, the wanting to take a, a bite from that other apple? Yeah, you know, I, I think time and time, so there's an old saying, right, where you are only as good, a man is only as faithful as his options. No, I'm not saying that's a fact. I'm not saying that I stand by that, but that's an old saying, right? And now, you see, back in the day, you know, you could meet someone at a gas station, you can meet someone at an apartment complex, you could meet someone at work, you can meet someone at school, you know, and those were basically the forms of meeting people. So your options were limited. And the person that you stuck with, you felt like was the best you could get because you really hadn't seen that many options. Now you could literally be sitting through the comfort of your own home and you can have a single bar in the comfort of your own hand and you can swipe and find someone that if there wasn't this technology, you never would have seen before. And unfortunately, what that gives people is a paradox of not getting married because they're waiting for the next best option. Because they know that if it doesn't work out with the person that perhaps they should have been destined to marry, that there's always going to be another option. There's always going to be a next best thing because all you have to do is pick up your phone and swipe and swipe and swipe until you have that match. So when people traditionally used to commit, when people traditionally used to work through relationships, used to talk through problems, used to be master communicators, that's just not happening anymore because people don't need to do that. Because people know that if I have a big argument with the person that I'm in a relationship right now, maybe I can find someone who doesn't argue like that. But what they don't realize is that when you leave a relationship because you guys can't get through conflict resolution, the next person that perhaps doesn't have that fault that the previous person has, they're going to have another fault that you don't like. And that next person is going to have another issue that you don't like. And what's happening right now is millennials, particularly people who are at the ages between 25 to 35 right now, is they're going through this cycle. They're getting in relationships that last from three to four months. And what they're doing is, any kind of conflict or any issues or if there's a small thing that they don't particularly like, they're out of it. And there was a a study that was released by the Pew Research Center that essentially said 25% of millennials are likely never to ever be married. And that's because of that one paradox of online dating. Well, if you're just joining us, we're we're talking with Trey H. Hennis. Uh, He's a licensed relationship therapist therapist, a black, black man himself. Uh, full disclosure, uh, we try to reach out to um, kind of balance the scale with a female um, a black therapist, and um, we were unable to do that, uh, but we'll continue as this, these shows go on. We'll, we'll certainly will have uh, that situation. You know, um, Trey, you, one of the things, uh, again, going back to the core, and you, you like – I like the term back in the day that you use, you know, back in the day. Yes. Uh, it, it seems though our grandparents and, and their parents, uh, work things out. Um, there was a lot more emphasis. Certainly you can even look at the numbers there, um, emphasis on spirituality, um, that it was biblical that you stay married. Um, not just for, the sake of your soul, but the sake of your kids. We'll get to that in a, a second. But it was biblical and spiritual to stay together. Um, 
And some experts and some uh, sort of articles to say that black men and black women are going in opposite directions in at that aspect that um, I've, I've seen that, you know, a lot of black women, if they aren't dating, hitting that button on the phone, um, they're holding out, if you will, quote unquote, um, for that godly man. And to a lesser percentage, and I'm not trying to kill either side, to a lesser percentage, maybe not so much with black men. So they don't stay in these relationships. They get divorced because they want to have that core values. We can get into if somebody, you know, infidelity and all that kind of stuff. But do you do you buy into that? Have you researched that? Have you had um, any of your, your patients or clients deal with that of, uh, about, you know, the spiritual moral side of things have been part of the disconnect of the black family. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting you say that in, in the black community, traditionally we're, we're very religious, you know, we're very Christian. And I think that there is a disconnect between the modern black male and the modern black women. You know, right now we're living in an age where, you know, black women are, and I don't want to generalize, but in the kind of couples that I've spoken to, the single people that I've spoken to for relationship advice, you know, oftentimes the black women that, you know, they're coming to me saying that a lot of men they're dating aren't necessarily God-fearing. Some of them don't even believe in God. And again, I'm not saying that's all of them, but that, that right. seems to be the big disconnect right there. In addition to that, what we're seeing is that we are kind of in a weird world right now where we want to be progressive. We want to talk about equality and stuff like that. But, you know, a lot of people want it both ways. And by that, I mean, they want to have a traditional role. They want to have a traditional marriage where the man is leading the way, the man is paying the majority of the bills, you know, the man is the patriarch of the house. But at the same time, you know, they want it where it's equality in the sense that, okay, a man has to be an alpha, he has to lead the way, he has to, you know, pay a majority of the bills, but they also want it where, you know, he's essentially doing what he can to make sure that she's happy, he's looking after the kids, he's you know, changing diapers as well. He's preparing meals as well. And again, I'm not saying that, you know, I buy into any particular gender role. But what I'm saying is a lot of people feel like they can have it both ways. And if you want a traditional God-fearing marriage, you can't have it both ways. That's just not the reality of modern relationships right now because the world is telling you one thing, right? You should do this. You should look at your career first, you know, don't ever let a woman tell you what to do. Don't ever let a man tell you what to do. But then traditions are telling you the complete opposite. And, you know, no man can mm. serve two masters, right? That, and that's uh, certainly out of uh, out of the good book. Um, you know, uh, it, w with that being said, I, I had a conversation with someone the other day, you know, having it both ways, wanting, uh, you know, a man to be um, sensitive uh, to a woman's needs, being, you know, allowing them to be a damsel, you know, being uh, polite, opening the doors, paying for dinner, things of that nature leading up, you know, if you're dating leading up to a uh, long-term and a marriage, which is, could be two different things. Um, and, and some women sort of buck about that. So how, how do, how do you merge the two? I mean, is there any, possibility of the understanding there because you know some people think that if 
if two sides are sort of have these uh, traditions and even, I would say, preconceived notions, then you lose out. You might have missed the, the greatest man you would have, would have been your partner or the, the greatest woman that would have been your, your wife forever because of the mixture. And, and I guess what I'm saying is that uh, uh, are, are the people going to listen to what society says and let that be um, the way they lead their relationships or are they going to go to traditional marriage and relationships? Exactly. So, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm always the first to this, right? Back in the day, the the general consensus was, you know, if if there's a man who's, you know, making a bulk of the money and, you know, the woman is at home looking after the kids, the role was always, you know, the man would make the money, put food on the table, you know, take care of the family. And that was his role, right? And then the woman's role was, hey, you know, I take care of the kids, do you know what I mean? Like, I'll take care of the house, blah, 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 blah. And I'm not saying, again, I want to be clear, I'm not saying that this is, you know, anything that I stand by. I stand by an individualist, um, an individual approach between you and your spouse, but I'm going to get into that in a second. But what, what we're seeing now is that, you know, the trade-offs that, that people want aren't matching, and they don't usually discuss it until they're a couple of dates in. Sometimes they're, they're even in a relationship. So uh, both parties, you know, men want it where, and I wouldn't say all men, but some men want it where, you know, they can be their provider and, and they can have, they can take care of their woman and, you know, they want something in return, uh, but they're not getting it. And then some women, they feel to themselves, okay, well, you know, so long as you take care of me, I'll take care of you. And a lot of men aren't taking care of them because they feel like, okay, well, you know, if you want equality, then you're going to pay for your half. You're going to pay for your meal. Do you know what I mean? Like, if, if you truly want equality, then, you know, you can't have it both ways. You know, I'm not going to take care of you if you want to be, you know, if you want to have that sense of equality in the relationship. And what I think needs to happen, and, and this is what, for me, is, you know, the first couple of dates, you two just have an honest conversation. You know, you look at your woman in the eye and say, hey, what do you think is good for you in a relationship? What works for you? And as a man, you say, hey, this is what works for me in a relationship. I'll give an example, Okay. For me, you know, um, I believe in equality and all that stuff. And I think that, you know, relationships should really be what you two decide. But I also like a woman who embraces the feminine. I don't really typically, I'm not attracted to masculine women, right? That's a preference that I have. I'm always going to, you know, let the person that I'm trying to be in a relationship know, right? So she and I know that we're on the same page. And if you're a woman, you should say, hey, you know, I'm looking for a, a God-fearing man. I'm looking for a masculine man. I'm looking for an alpha man. And you be very clear what you want because that way there could be no disputation. There can't be a situation where the guy said, oh, well, I didn't know you wanted that because you never communicated it from the get-go. Everything needs to happen from the first three dates in regards to communication. It's it's funny you, you brought that up, um, Dr. Trey, because when you – uh, you have situations where um, people are dating. There is no, it seems, right, no no real honesty. It's almost like I used to say years ago, um, you know, when you're hungry, everything tastes good. So sometimes it seems, Doc, you know better than I do, that um, 
it seems as though black men and women tend to try to force relationships that are not there. You can't put a square, a square in a circle based on whatever they want, whether they're trying to, whether the woman's trying to um, make the man that they just met into what they want it to be or perceive and the opposite. Like they, you know, you know, after a few dates, right, that is probably sometimes after a, a conversation that's probably not going to be a good mix. So why, what is the reason behind that? Is that insecurity? Is that, you know, because people feel lonely? Why do they try to force relationships that are really not there? You know, especially now with, you know, the the civil rights movement that we're, we're almost reigniting in regards to talking about, you know, Black Lives Matter and stuff like that. I think a lot of black men and black women feel like, look, you know, we're going through an important movement right now. And I, I want to be with, you know, a brother or a sister that's, you know, going to help me raise kids so we can protect them and, and help them understand what it truly means to to be black and, and proud, right? But, you know, it's it's very steeper among blacks right now. I, I mean, I remember reading an article. It said that in the 1960s, you know, 74% of whites were married, and that rate dropped to 56% in 2008. And, and when I think about that, that's a huge, huge drop. But what's interesting is that in comparison to blacks, in 1960, 61% of blacks were married, okay? In 2008, it's only 32%. Black people are getting divorced more often and remarry less frequently than uh, Caucasian people right now, which is nuts when you think about it. Um, and, and this is something that, you know, whenever I try and counsel a couple, you know, I let them know how imperative it is that they survive in this modern dating world and relationship world and marriage world right now because, you know, things are slowly falling apart and we need to stick together if we're going to be in a situation where we can progress as a people. Uh, you know, um, Doc, and I, I got a question that came in, and I want to remind people that you can get online and ask questions at 646-929-0130. Um, you can also hit us up in the chat room uh, online if you're listening online. Uh, you can hit us up with your questions and comments in the chat room as well. Email us, labachelor40 at gmail.com, and hit us up on Facebook at Pad Nation or Twitter at Pad Nation too if you have uh, a question. So there's all kinds of ways to get to uh, Dr. Trey, and then ask some some questions. Doc, when you when you mention all of that, um, and it it goes to um, we I asked about you know what are the reasons why they they do what they do in terms of trying to force relationships. One of the the stats and one of the things that I think people don't black people don't really realize is that, and it goes back to the Monaghan letters back, you know, in 1962, um, that if we already know, is Captain Obvious is, you know, statistically kids grow up better when there's a mother and father in, in the household, married. They don't really go into just living together, but mother and father there in the household. They They do generally better in all phases of their life for the most part. Um, and if that doesn't happen, you know, the numbers go down, single moms, you know, no, no men in the household, we get into incarceration and why they're not there and things of that nature. 
but the kids get affected. So it's almost, it's, it's what's worse for children, at least two parents that stay together, knowing they should not be together. They probably shouldn't even gotten together in the first place for the sake of the kids. And then, you know, kids are smart. They see things, they know things and they absorb things. So they see the, the tension, if there's tension there or parents that get divorced um, and those kids have to deal with, you know, the separation. You're staying with mom sometimes, you're staying with dad sometimes. Maybe dad's not there all the time. Maybe mom gave up her right, whatever the case may be. What's worse? I mean, because ultimately um, the breakdown of the family has affected the kids, and, and kids learn, you know, from those surroundings and those adults that are around them, good or bad. I concur with you fully. I, I think it's it's definitely difficult because there is that stigma of, you know, having the paradigm of single moms because, you know, black men, we still have a significantly higher incarceration rate, right? And that leaves, you know, uh, a lot of uh, boys or, or girls motherless, uh, fatherless, and it's difficult for them to kind of want to get married because that's not necessarily something that they grew up with. And when I say this, you know, this isn't me necessarily victim shaming or anything like that. But you could imagine that, you know, in the 70s and 60s, when there weren't any video cameras to film the atrocities that some police officers had done, or, you know, when Bill Clinton, you know, had that act where even if you had some weed, essentially, you could be locked up for five to six years, right? You know, there's generations that are still trying to recover from that, you know, generations that didn't see their father around because he was locked up for for blatant racism or racial profiling. And, and that is suffering that, pe- you know, people in my generation, you know, we're suffering by the effects of that right now because some of us didn't grow up with a traditional family. So it's hard for us to want that. I also think when you talk about, you know, characteristics and situations why black men and black women are, are getting married less, I think expectations are, are very, very high for both parties. But I want to focus specifically on on women's preferences. You know, black men, a lot of them, and the black men that I've spoken to have have felt like they have an increasing amount of pressure and that they fall very short of a woman's preference. You know, for example, I had uh, a guy I was talking to about two months ago who had recently broken up with his girlfriend and he wanted me to to help him find a date. You know, he wanted me to to get an online dating profile. So I, I did his online dating profile for him. I helped him with his bio. And he said to me, he said, you know, it's kind of crazy out there. You know, women want you to have, you know, an amazing body, uh, a six-figure job. They want you to be empathetic, but they want you to be alpha. You know, they don't want you to be trying too hard, but they want you to be trying hard. They want to be taken out. They want someone to raise a family. They don't want you to have any kids. They don't want you to have any debt. They don't want you. And, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And again, you know, I'm not saying that this is just separate to black women, but I don't date, you know, men. So I wouldn't really be able to talk from a woman's perspective. Um, But, you know, they they have very, very high aspirations, which isn't a bad thing. But I'll give an example, right? When black women were asked uh, how important it is that they have a good husband or a partner to provide a good income, two thirds of black women said that it was very, very important compared to 32% of white women. 
And then roughly 55% of black women said that it was very important for a husband or partner to be well-educated compared to 28% of white women. So what that's saying is that um, a lot of black women are saying that, look, you know, 55% of them to be specific are saying, look, you know, you're not really going to get an opportunity if you're not highly educated, which I think is drastically unfair because not everyone is afforded the privilege of being highly educated. I think, you know, some of the best employees have worked for me who have just had high school diplomas. And quite frankly, they've worked harder than most people who have university degrees. And, and that's a stigma that, that needs to die. And then half of the black women said that financial stability should be an important precondition for marriage. But only a quarter of white women felt that way. Now, when I say this, I'm not saying that, you know, Caucasian women are better than black women. What I am saying is that black women have very, very high expectations for black men. I don't necessarily think this is a bad thing, but I do think that there is a portion of black men who don't fulfill that criteria, who feel like they're losing out and feel like it's not even a battle that I want to fight because there's no way I can possibly win right now. Wow. You know, it's, 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 I'm, I'm glad you, you said that uh, again, um, I, I'm a, a member of a few different groups, real, real dads and some, some stuff like that. Um, we have conversations like that a, a, a lot about those things and I won't get into my specifics, but a lot of, a lot of the brothers say that, you know, that, that that's the case. Even when, you know, um, prejudging everybody tends to prejudge on some some level and you know some of the brothers have said to me you know um i i just don't know what what they want black women want you know if i'm dressed and clean cut they think i'm soft if i look like a thug then i'm too i'm too thugged out they don't want that if i and and i think the um the what you mentioned in regards to education um there are a lot of opportunities to get an education i do think that you know some form of training i would say is important Mm -hmm. but like you said not everybody's going to get a degree and then at the same time i do believe that uh a you want to i would want someone um to be bringing something to the table financially, working at least, right? Um, If you're able-bodied, you're not, you know, disabled or anything. Um, And certainly, and the other thing is, you know, coming to the table if you, uh, you know, you're either trying to improve your credit and you're standing or you have good credit. I mean, these are the things that I think both men, black women, men and women kind of look at, especially, if if they're in that position, but does that mean from those stats that you said, Dr. Trey, that um, is it hard for, say, an educated, well-off black woman to even give an opportunity or come into the same circles of a black man who is the opposite? And, you know, same thing with a black man, black man who's well-off, and um, educated, trying to date and be in a relationship and have a long-lasting relationship with a woman that is not of those same areas? Well, you know, I, I think you have to 
to look at, at the expectations for both sexes, right? You know, the, typically the saying goes, a man is only as good as what he can provide. That rings very, very true. You know, I noticed a, a significant change in the kind of relationships I had when I was broke and studying my MBA in my undergraduate <laughs> versus when I was actually having a salary job, right? There was a significant change with my dating opportunities, right? But that same mentality is not given to women. You will never hear anyone say a woman's value is only as good as what she can provide financially. You know, for most men, a woman's value is how she can support him, right? How they can grow together. You know, we're biologically wired to want and need certain things, even though we're all about equality these days. We still can't ignore, you know, what we're biologically required to want. Men have been the hunter and gatherer since the beginning of time, literally hunting bison as cavemen. Do you see where we're coming from? So, you know, when we talk about if you are a significantly successful black man, when it comes to getting a woman, you're going to have a much easier task as opposed to if you are a significantly successful black woman and you're trying to get a man. Because a lot of men are intimidated. Let's take away black women in general by significantly successful women. Because most women who are very successful in the corporate world, they've had to embrace masculine energy to get there. Because the American corporate workforce and the Western corporate workforce is still very male-dominated and very male-gendered. Which means if you're a woman and you want to climb the ladder, you need to embrace those masculine traits, I would like it to change, but that's the situation we're in right now. Therefore, if a woman is a VP or a CEO or anything like that, typically she has masculine traits, and most men don't really want to date that. Some base males... But, uh, but also, isn't it, isn't it, you talked about DNA, I didn't mean to cut you off, Dr. Trey, but DNA with the men who, is it just intimidation, or is it a man prejudging that successful black woman saying, oh, she ain't going to want to do it. She got every letter on, on after her name, the PhD and all that. She, she's not going to want to work with me. I'm a construction worker whatever case, no disrespect to them. But is it not just intimidation, but is also prejudging that the fact that, you know, why would she want to even deal with me? Is that insecurity? Yeah, I, I would definitely say it, it's 50-50. I'd say it's one you know, men definitely have a bit of insecurity, you know, with masculine women. And two, you know, they feel like, well, you know, I've been a bus driver for the past 10 years. You know, I, I just don't think there's anything that I can do about this, you know, or they could say, well, you know, she's so educated and so intelligent. There's no way she would even give me a shot. So right. I think a solution for that is, you know, if we want to boost marriage rates uh, amongst black people, you know, we should really focus on uh, improving job opportunities and education, particularly mm. for black men. Um, you know, black women are winning right now, and, and I'm for it. They're winning significantly more than black men. Um, you know, I, I was reading an article, and according to the Bureau of Labor and Statistics, they were saying that 18.4% of black men were jobless compared to 9.6% of white men. Now, we're not going to get into, you know, the historical atrocities of systematic racism, right? Because we know why we're here, fine. But at the same time, you know, there are still significant racial disparities that persist. I mean, end of March, you know, I was laid off by my job due to COVID. 
And it took me about two and a half months to get back into work, whereas I had a Caucasian counterpart where it took him a month. Now, I'm not going to get into the specifics. It could have been, you know, maybe he had better context and connections that, that, that I did than I did. But my point we know what we know what it is, Doctor Trey. We we know what it is, Doctor <laughs> Table. Go ahead. We know. Come on. We know what it is. <laughs> but but yeah. But but what I'm saying is, you know, we need to give black men more opportunities to to thrive. You know, we need to allow the patterns that we've seen before to be changed. And you know, black women they they got to give us a shot. You know, they got to realize that we're still struggling. You know, we're still seen as a certain element in society and, and we need to be accepting of all people regardless of educational financial status. Right. And, you know, I, I will say this too, to, to your point about uh, uh, black women, um, some of the most educated over the last few decades, they're much more aggressive than men, black men, right? They, and, and we tend to want to grunt it out, you know, historically, if you will. We'll work that nine to five. They want more. They're more tentative. They 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 work as hard statistically, harder as you mentioned. Um, so there, there's those things. I want to get to a a question that came in, and got a lot of people actually sending in questions. Uh, Kimberly uh, said that she wants that traditional uh, black man, that black husband that is, you know, um, steep in godly values that's that's what she wants and and that was her question you can address that but just to, to add on to that um what about even if you want the godly values but you know again let's live in a real world you're not going to get the perfect person the the, the last perfect person we know you know walked on water and is supposed to be coming back if you believe in 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 the book but but the thing is that if if you can get 80% of what you want and deal with the 20% you don't get you know the 80 20 rule isn't that enough and 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 one would think that the godly principles would probably be built into that anyway yeah and you know it's i want to touch on the first question then I'm going to touch on the second one so you know if you want to find a a godly man who you feel like embraces you know the key attributes of you know a a man right in a relationship and marriage then you need to go to the places where you can traditionally find them and that's not going to be the club that's not going to be the bar now I'm not saying that you know I'm sure there's a preacher that's gone to a good bar in his time right or so but I'm talking about those people that are in the same club Every week, the same bars every week on a Saturday night. I very much doubt that the guy's going to be coming out of some club at 3 a.m. and making sure he can wake up at 8 a.m. to 9 p.m. to go to his Sunday service, right? So Mm. if you want to find a God-fearing man, you need to go to the places where God-fearing men are going to be. For example, look at your local chamber of black commerce, okay? Look at your local church gatherings. Look at your reach-out events. Look at events you know, charity events, you know, where good black men are generally going to be. Because black men who don't care about that sort of stuff, they ain't going to be there. You know, they ain't going to be no, if, if, if there's a black man who, who's not a God-fearing man, he's not going to be going to no reach-out event. He's not going to be feeding the homeless. He's not going to be going to no march <laughs> or protest. You see what I'm saying? Like, you need to go to the places where you can find 
good men, okay? And I always tell right. people it's not going to be the bar or the club. It might be a dating app, but you need to be specific and strategic when you do that. I, you know, if I'm a woman and I'm looking for a God-fearing man, I'm not going to be swiping on a guy who's topless. That guy's not God-fearing man. The only thing he's fearing is that he's going to get a belly and he's going to lose his six-pack. So, yeah, but let me ask you. Let me just play advocate with you, Doctor Trey. Let me ask you. Uh, uh, play dev, play advocate. I should say not devil's advocate, but advocate. But some people would say, well, you still see, you know, the wolves in sheep's clothing at the church, at these uh, protests, at these other events. So, how, you know, again, maybe it's a smaller portion than if you go to the club, but maybe you still find those people. In other words. You know, it maybe comes into your 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 innermost sense, your spiritual sense, as some people say, Holy Spirit, some people say, that you kind of figure it out and discern things. But how do you figure it out? Because, if it, you know, we, we know stories of pastors that have fallen short and had oh, wives yeah. and embezzled money and things of that nature, too. Uh, so... You know, as soon as we're talking about God-fearing men, I, I'm going to by, – by their fruits, you may know them, okay? Which mm. basically is saying that actions speak far louder than words, you know? And right. I always say to women, look, if you're trying to get to know if a guy's God-fearing, you know, and I'm going to get quite raw here, think about the sexual component of things, okay? I believe that if a man is willing to wait, now, I'm not talking about waiting until marriage. I'm not that old school. I'm old school, but I ain't that old school, okay? I'm not, if you want to wait until marriage, <laughs> you know, by all means. But I'm not looking to – I would never do that. I think that's madness. You know what I'm saying? But, for example, I was once in a situation where I was dating someone, and we didn't have sex for two months because, you know, that was important to her, right? And I was like, all right, that's, that's kind of important to me as well. I could do it in three weeks, but if you want to do two months, it's fine by me. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Like, I was willing to wait because I was, you know, confounded by her beliefs, and I, I believed in it, but she wanted to take it there. I wanted to take it there, right? And you're going to find men that are significantly better than me that, like, yeah, let's, let's just date and, and give it a couple of months till we share that moment, right? If the guy says he's God-fearing, and then it's the second date, and he's like, yo, come over to the house. Like, you know, let's get it on. Then that guy's not got fear. He's playing around. He's playing around, okay? You, you know, women, in fact, are far more discerning than men because they've had to deal with yeah. it from 16 and upwards. You know, women get specifically attractive women. They get harassed all the time. You get, I mean, I remember once I was uh, at the gas station. You know, my girl was in the car, and then she got out because it was too hot, and she was on her phone. I walk out the gas station, there's some guy trying to run up on her. He's just trying to talk to her. I said, hey, we got over here. He's like, oh, sorry, man. Is this you? I said, yeah, this is me. So my point <laughs> being is that women, <laughs> you know, women get har- harassed and guys trying to pick them up, you know, on a daily basis. So they know a good man that's in front of them. And if they don't, then they need to start looking back at the mistakes they've made with men before. I'll give you another example, okay, for me. So... I know that if I'm texting someone and, you know, she's not that good at texting, she responds the next day, that's typically not a good sign. She's just going to waste my time. She's dealing with other guys. She's not that interested. I know that by historical data throughout my relationship life. If you're a woman, right. you know the certain things that you have done in your past and the result hasn't ended in your favor, stop doing that thing 
than the past. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again. Mm. That's real talk. I, and uh, I like <laughs> what you said. <laughs> the, the guy was hollering at your girl. That was uh, that was funny. You know, um, and 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 you know, I mean, we're we're men. You know, the wind blows and we get excited. I mean, let's just be let's be real <laughs> about that. I mean, I mean, really. You know, you know that that's yeah, that's really uh, we we are. Um, but it, it's it's important though too, just to to. Look at the other side, um, because what about the men who – well, let me backtrack, uh, Dr. Trey. I think that – I think you agree that just like parenting, society looks at uh, the woman in a better light than the man. Now, the man has caused that a lot, abandonment, you know, cheating and things of that nature – but there are some good men out there, right, in terms of being good fathers, you know, and being good men, um, those who really want something. But I think society um, paints this picture, and maybe some women buy into that, um, you know, he, you know, I got dogs, so the next one's going to be a dog. Or, um, you know, men don't hurt. We hurt. Men just move on. We don't hurt. We never get our bro- our hearts broken or anything like that. Um, well, I won't get into my personal stuff, but th- those things do happen. What what about that side of things? So you're saying what about the side of things where men, essentially, when it comes to court, they, they're they seen as like uh, – you're saying that they're seen as like uh, we are the aggressors in the situation. I'm, I'm saying that um, society and some women, black women, look at men as uh, you know that they they don't hurt or they all don't take care of their, their kids or you know all the negatives that society mainstream tries to put on black men that is really just. Uh, a stereotype because this you can never say all anyway, but I I mean I'll go personal now I know I'm a good father period so mm-hmm. um, but mm-hmm. and there's a lot of good fathers out there and also the fact that we do get into loving monogamous relationships and we do get hurt we get burned by a woman like you said that don't she don't text back the next day till the next day you know she's not about anything like women can have can date a bunch of men and they're weighing their options men date a lot of women and their dogs right, which 100% is true and and that you know by by nature uh, a lot of women are, are hypergamous right and and that's how a lot of them are wired not all of them but some of them in the sense that you know, they want the best of the best because as men, we are the choosers. We are the pursuers. We are seen as dogs because, you know, we are trying to find the perfect match. But what people don't understand is that there's a difference between a man and a woman. Now, when a woman has multiple guys that she's interested in, you know, it's different because, you know, you could, if a woman walked down the street right now, she, you know, she's wearing a revealing top, you know what I mean? She's looking good, you know, tight hugging, figure hugging dress, and she said to a guy, hey, look, I just broke up with my boyfriend, you want to have sex, 
I don't know any man that would say no, or at least say it, not now, okay. but maybe like in a couple of hours, right, if he was busy. There right. isn't really a man that would say no. Me, personally, I'd say no just because, like, it's too easy. There's something wrong in the hood. I'm going to get jumped around the corner or something, right? But for the most part, most men are going to say yes. If a man walks up to a woman and says that, the police are going to run upon him. He's going to get slapped. She might be carrying if she has a concealed carry. Like, it's over for that guy if he just walks up to a girl and says, let's have sex. So the double standard is, is getting worse and worse because misandry is, is increasing, you know, hatred towards men. We, we've just discovered in the last five years of the Me Too mo- mo- movement that there are a lot of men who have been abusing their power and authority to abuse women, which, you know, I don't condone. I think it's disgusting, and I think those men deserve their just desserts. However, because of that, we dealt with overcorrection. And what that meant when I say overcorrection is that Men who were just, you know, doing things like trying to pick up a woman at a bar or something, you know, other people would say, oh, that's harassment because we're trying to overcorrect the issue that has been happening for, for so many years. And there's always been that double standard because women have always been painted as the damsels in distress, you know, the women who, who are very delicate and, and you can't hurt their feelings. Whereas men were always portrayed as we're just dudes running up on any girl. And we're just trying to hook up with women and have sex and, and leave. When in reality, The tables have never been closer than they ever have before. As a man, I know if this woman is worth her salt, if she's as attractive as I think she is, she's definitely going to have two to four guys that she is talking to the same time she's dating me. And you know how it is as Mm. as a man. You know when you're rising to the top. You know when you're the number one guy. You know when she's not seeing any other guy before you. But in those beginning stages, she's definitely talking to other men. But for us, it's expected for us to just be like, okay, I'm only focusing on you. Like, it's a very terrible, terrible double standard that needs to change. Yeah, I I, I have to agree. And, and I, I wanted to throw the emphasis on, too, you know, the, the motherhood and the fatherhood. And um, and going back there, I did a, get a, I got a comment from someone who said um, they don't – the man doesn't have to be perfect – a lot of women comments. Uh, the man doesn't have to be perfect, but he he will be perfect for her, and they're perfect together, which I think is is profound. Um, but what about upbringings? We didn't get a chance. And folks, if you're just joining us, we're talking with uh, uh, Trey H. Hennis, aka Dr. Trey. He's a licensed rela- relationship therapist here on the Bachelor News Radio Show. If you're on the line, you have a question. I may. Uh, Queue, go in the queue and ask you if you have a question for our guest before he goes. And I see people on the line. So if if you get silenced, that me, means I'm on the queue. I'm trying to ask you if you have a question for the guest um, that you want to, to, to relate to. And I see a lot of people on the line. Um, but, but, Doc, what about upbringings? Because let's say whether you're married or not, we already talked about the statistics there. Um, with black women and, and black men, and maybe next week we get you on, we'll, we'll talk about interracial, which is a whole different thing that probably uh, get people riled up. But <laughs> if you, if you're a, whether, let's just say hypothetically, you're a black woman and you grew up with two parents and you're a black man and you grew up with one parent or no parents and you're trying mm-hmm. to connect and there's some different there's some different experiences there. 
You know, mm. Naughty by Nature said, if you've never been to the ghetto, stay the bleep out of the ghetto. If you never had those experiences, then sometimes it's hard to relate. But if, you know, no, but you know what right and wrong is. So what about those upbringings? If if they have different upbringings, I my sister raised me. God love her. Her birthday, big shout out to her, her birthday coming up Sunday. But my mother died when I was 11. My father wasn't around. I think I turned out okay. So I'm even in a different category. But what about those who had two parents as opposed to one parent or foster care or no parents? When they try to come together, does that play a part into it, the upbringing? Yeah, so, you know, upbringing is is huge. It's very, very huge. You know, I remember where I was in a situation where I dated a woman who was incredibly affluent. Her her parent, her dad was literally a millionaire. You know, I think he was worth like 20 million or something like that. I looked him up online and I, I got a little bit intimidated. But it was just, you know, that was a source of contention where we didn't even think it would be because for a lot of issues that I was going through, she just couldn't understand. I remember I had just graduated from my MBA and I was struggling to find work. And, you know, she was just like, ah, oh, you'll find something. Like, it's not that big of a deal. I was like, it is that big of a deal. Like, I literally paid for this out of my own pocket. Like, you know, your parents paid for your school. They didn't pay for mine, right? And that was just one of the very different arguments that we had because, you know, she had different mentalities on money and how money should be used and how disposable money was. So your upbringing, you know, how you've been raised is just critical. I think what we're failing to understand with, you know, black love right now is that it's changed. You see, back in the day, if you're in the 670s, you know, for the most part, you two would probably have the same sort of family with financial status, right, I want to say. But now we're living in a completely different generation where as a black man or black woman, you could come from a well-to-do mom and dad who was making a hundred grand plus per year. And then, you know, he or she could run up on someone where they're dating someone who just had one dad or one mom that, you know, they weren't broke, but they were working class. They really saw their parents because they were always working overtime. You know, they scrimped and saved to go to college. Maybe they just got like a diploma and these two are meeting and they think it should work out because we're both flat. But in reality, values and how you brought up are everything. And hell, you could have, you know, two black people who were raised up in a fairly affluent background, but one of them, their family is completely atheist, and the other one's religious. It doesn't mean black love is going to survive that. It could, but it it just takes extra work. So we're dealing with so many different ends of the spectrum when it comes to black love right now that you have to remember with any relationship, one of the key things that's always going to hold you together is respect and values. If you don't share the right. same values, you're going to lose respect. And if you don't have respect, you're never going to have love, period. Mm. Amen to that. And, and to the, to your point, uh, Dr. Trey, um, uh, upbringings, especially when it comes to affluent or even middle class to poor. We grew up in the projects. We weren't gangster, but we were poor. So I, I, I've experienced the gun to my head by by uh, somebody trying to rob me or a cop in this climate, you know, police shootings and things of that nature. So I am going to be absolutely engaged in protesting and for social injustices and, and equality and those things. And 
uh, you know, black woman may have never experienced that. Maybe never experienced that. So, you know, she she grew up and all her friends were, it was a, a rainbow and she never heard the N-word. She never had to go through those things. So when we come together, then there's some differences. And then I'm the militant black guy and and they can't relate. So, so even with that, uh, I would think uh, not just the upbringing of the values, Doc, but the environment, what you believe, what you've experienced, what you understand, you know, we didn't trust the beliefs. That, that might've been something different for somebody else. So speak to that real quick. I mean, even with the upbringings of the neighborhoods, if if you can't connect there, then it is going to have to take some respect, some trust and some understanding. Yeah. So, you know, I, 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 completely concur with you you know even though i'm from london you know what people don't realize is that there are some ghettos of london so to speak and <laughs> you know uh despite that though when i when i first came to america you know the the second person i ever started dating you know she was african-american and you know she was talking and she she dropped the n-word a few times and i was like oh oh okay uh that's a bit commonplace over here huh Right, and, and then we kind of got into a discussion. I said, you know, you can't be hating on your own people. And she was like, well, no, that's just how we refer to each other. I'm like, well, that's disgusting. How could you call him that? That's racist, <laughs> right? And, right. You know, she explained to me the reason why it happens here is because we're owning the word. We're taking it back. You know, we it's ours now. You know, people try to use it as a, a racial jab at us, but now we're taking it back. That's why we refer to each other that way. And I was like, oh, Oh, okay, right, and and that whole thing was resolved, but not other black couples. It, it's not that easy, right? Because sometimes, and this has happened to me a few times, I once dated a black lady who was adopted by a Caucasian family, and me and her, we broke up because it was around, uh, I think it was 2014. Tamir Rice, right, the 14 year old kid, smoked right. by the police. Rest in peace, yeah. Tamir Rice. And she just said, "Well, you know." Yeah, all lives matter, and if he wasn't there in the first place, you know, if he wasn't waving around a toy gun, then they would never have done that in the first place, and I'm like, I cannot believe that you're saying this. I cannot believe that you're saying this, right? Um, and you have some people that are like that, you know, and I'm not going to get into any words of what I would call that person, but, you know, it doesn't always work because you have different values. Values matter for everything. How you're raised right. always matters. Right. Uh, I had a one final one that uh, someone said that um, um, I just want to make sure I, I, I got the quote uh, correctly uh, that said that um, you can only appreciate something more as when you do the work yourself gives you a sense of pride. And uh, again, uh, good comment there. Dr. Trey, uh, listen, I, I, we have to talk off air, so I want to make sure we get you on and we continue this this series and, and um, certainly um, delve in. I, when we have you on again, I want to talk about black love as it relates to the, the other side, self-hate, and why do we hate our own skin? And, and are we buying into what society uh, portrays us as? But before you go, I want people to know how they can reach out to you, your social media, your website, how they can, um, um, you know, uh, obtain your, your services. 
Yeah, for sure. Um, you can go to my website, thefirstdatefix.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at thefirstdatefix. You can follow me on Twitter, thefirstdatefix. And you can go on my YouTube at thefirstdatefix. I upload two videos, two videos weekly on YouTube and Instagram. I post every day for daily advice and tips. I also do a free consultation if you would like your online dating app uh, profile to be maximized. And I guarantee you that I will get you at least one day a week if you allow me to maximize your online dating profile. Well, I, I tell you, 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 you're a very impressive young man. Cambridge, Cambridge, you know, in London, that's the Yale of of the United States. So, I mean... Anybody's not impressed yeah. with that, and I don't know. Um, I don't know what they would be. Dr. Trey, I'm going to uh, hit you up uh, off air. Thank you so much. God bless. Be safe, and I'll talk with you next week, sir. All right. God bless, brother. Bye-bye.
Welcome back to the show. We thank you for joining us. And uh, if you missed any of our broadcasts, make sure that you go to our website, thebachelornews.airtime.pro, thebachelornews.airtime.pro, and you can catch this broadcast at 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, pro. Back to the phones. Uh, she's an education consultant of a program called Local Heroes, uh, and it's good to have her on. Everybody, uh, a lot of the uh, school districts around the country are having their schools, their kids, um, you know, learn online. It's been frustrating for teachers. It's been frustrating for the, some of the students. A lot of that, of course, because of COVID-19. Here to talk about it is Jita Raj uh, on the line for the first time. And listen, uh, ma'am, I really appreciate you coming on this evening to the Bachelor News Radio Show. Thank you. It's really, um, really an honor to be here and speaking with you and um, and be be with you tonight. Absolutely. So what does the Local Heroes Program uh, do, and and what are you in terms of define education consultant? Uh, Right. Um, So uh, the work that that I've been doing um, is I I started um, working in education uh, with an organization that I started called the Global Sleepover, and um, that that work has really been about um, teaching children about global cultures, multiculturalism, um, having kids, um, uh, teaching them in a fun and creative way about how they belong in their community and how they also belong in their global community globally. And so we've been working towards um, social emotional learning education, towards multicultural learning. Um, And we've used the hybrid approach now for 10 years, which is really this distance learning, um, online learning, but also in-person learning. And so what we have – oh, go ahead, sorry. No, no, uh, no, go ahead. So what we have created um, when COVID started and when education um, did become more online-based, we thought, okay, you know, the best approach that we've figured out, our best practices, is really a hybrid approach to online learning. It's very difficult to just have a student (laughs) sitting in front of a computer screen and teaching and learning um, distance uh, is is a completely different beast of its own. Uh, so um, we thought, well, you know, and if we can't have face-to-face instruction, can we do to supplement this to make this a more engaging experience for the student, a more engaging experience for teachers, something where um, where we can promote um, social studies learning, we can promote critical thinking, promote project-based learning um, in, a, in a creative way. And so what happened is we started to hear all these stories <clears throat> about um, communities coming together, you know, um, somebody sewing masks, somebody starting food distribution, people are are walking the dogs of medical workers that were working um, overtime in hospitals. And we just thought, you know, this is exactly what we've been wanting to portray is um, is our community members um, being community heroes, being local heroes. And we saw these stories coming out in the U.S. and globally. So um, this has been the inspiration behind um, creating our local heroes learning program. 
So the the local heroes uh, program, it, it, how effective has it been? Do you have any um, statistics or any data to show thus far? And how how much or how many districts have you been working with? That that's a good question. So um, our our work in this hybrid approach, um, we have uh, variations of our programs and activities um, besides local heroes um, that are based in project-based learning, um, and we have we piloted the, these systems and tests for numbers of years, um, and we've been working with. Uh, we work in now eight countries globally um, with numerous school districts, organizations, school systems, individuals, um, and then uh, other types of camp-based um, engagement. And so in terms of effectiveness, um, the the real key has been the engagement component. So the something like the Local Heroes program, which we've developed, it's about storytelling. So children are learning about um, a topic that is of interest, is relevant through a story, but then we ask them to take that knowledge and um, engage with it in fun, project-based ways. So, you know, writing a story in, in return or doing an assignment that is a more creative assignment where they use the same knowledge and they're, they gain the same skills, um, but just in a fun way. So in that respect, um, our programs have been, we've seen 90% increase in everything from um, reading comprehension to social studies learning, to geography, to creativity, critical thinking, um, using this project-based approach. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Gita Raj. She's an education co- consultant and pro- program called Local Heroes Program here on the Bachelor News Radio Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network in WCOM in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I, I, I have to ask the other side of this, which is, sure. you know, you, it, and whenever you when people come up with great plans, there's always going to be opposition, and, and, and typically in this climate, political. Uh, you have a man occupying the White House who says every these kids, all kids just need to be in school. No regard for the safeties, for the parents, for the teachers even in that guard. Have you uh, experienced that type of resistance from parents or local um, teachers or the mayors or anybody that um, know about the program? And how do you sort of combat that? Mm, yeah. Um well, I th- I think I think that uh, in general, with with this type of program, you're you know you're going to have um, you will have people that are don't understand right, or people that see education as traditional sitting in a classroom, you know, looking at um, in a desk in a traditional teacher structure role. So how we combat that is really from this approach is that this is a creative project learning um, activity. So um, we're couching it in terms of education, but at the same time, it's also engagement. It's also entertainment um, because children, it's based on storytelling. And and especially like something like the local heroes, you know, we're highlighting community members that are doing amazing things and inspiring the child to see themselves as also being a community member, a local hero. So I, I think the... Um, the other way to combat that also is it does um, the program does involve materials that come in the mail to the child or the students can pick it up from their local school. Um, so 
everything the child needs to learn is right there in the activity book, right there in the materials. So it's it's distance learning from a different perspective. And um, I, you know, within the education circles, I think mm. this approach of um, of skills based learning, um, this approach of again project based learning, it's almost a safe space <laughs> for something right. like this because it's short bites. Um, it's you're still you're still um, um, you're still teaching the same the same skills. You're still teaching the same learning outcomes, but couching it in a way that a child can understand it without without realizing that it's learning. I would say that is that um, that would be the best. Um, response to those that are that are doubting the power of this type of learning and um, and then finally on this um, creativity and so we right. see um, we see students that you know we've had so many students say age 12 13 younger who just look at you and say or they tell you on the phone I don't know what to write about. You know, we tell them to write a story and then we work with them and we say, okay, well, write the story about something, you know, right? What is your favorite activity? And we slowly just kind of spark that creativity and the empowerment that comes um, comes from being able to do that for the child. I mean, it's clear to anybody, the parent or an adult or a sibling about power of that type of empowerment. Um, so, I would I would say that um, something like this is is meant to um, in the least be something entertaining and creative, and at best be something that is a mixture of education, engagement, and entertainment. You know, you you, you brought up um, a few things, and uh, one of which empowerment, and and sort of making it fun. Uh, I'm I'm blessed blessed to my kids are aren't going you know they're doing the online education now with the the, the school they go to it and I'm I'm fortunate and blessed enough to be working at home so I can be able to in in the office and be able to help them you know when they need it. Um, not every parent is in that position, not just being home and having to get childcare and that, and you know someone there, but also having the um, the tools, resources, the you know the the laptop and and having those type of things. Um, mm-hmm. Social social interaction is important um, for everybody, but especially kids. They they need to be around each other. So there there are a lot of parents that are struggling with that, like they're concerned about that. Um, but how do you how do you um, do you help with the resources? Number one, and mm-hmm. um, if not, is there any any other place where they can get those resources? And and is there any curriculum in there to? I guess you're making it fun, but any curriculum that that helps the kid get past the fact that yeah, they can see their friend, they can chat with them, but they're not there. Mm-hmm. They can't go out to the playground on, at lunch break and and hang out yeah. with them. You know what I mean? Of course. Totally no, different. And, and it's a it's a completely different approach. Um, so so absolutely, um, you know, equity and access equities in education and accessible education. This is the key and our driving goal and mission in the creating these types of programs. So it's not about 
um, having the fastest internet speed, <laughs> right? Um, right? It's not about having the devices, but it's those are tools and not the ends. Um, the end, so they're the means to the end. Um, so in that regard, um, we are. That's why we've designed a program where something comes in the mail to the child. So everything the child needs to engage with this, if the child only has access to a telephone, <laughs> right? Um, then mm. between the telephone and the activity book, um, the child can still learn and engage and participate. Um, and so the socialization part is very important. And this is where um, we have really seen the power of storytelling. Um, so we, we asked the child in the programs, um, especially at a remote distance, okay, um, we want you to write a story, right? And this means right. you draw something. This means you call up um, your friend, call up your neighbor, call up somebody you haven't spoken to and interview them and ask questions to them and then write a story about them from their perspective. So um, all of this, of course, we work with the child at their individual kind of um, area, but because it's creative, you know, it's a safe environment for a child. And so we really encourage them to start to build those empathy skills, those social skills by communicating um, and by thinking about um, thinking about a situation, a character, a person in a different way. So if I'm not able to see my friend in person, um, maybe I can have a video call with them or FaceTime on my phone with, with a friend and ask them questions that I probably don't think about asking my friend, you know. Um, so it's just a different way of engaging, a different way of relating. Um, we do provide support, absolutely, 100%. Um, you know, as much as as we would like to see children engaged, <laughs> you know, there there does need to be some coaching and some um, support. And um, so, depending on the the community we're working with, sometimes that support is in tele form of telephone. Sometimes it is online. Sometimes it is um, a YouTube link. So we adjust according to the environment we're working in. And one thing we've really done um, in this regard is we have in the program that we're running is um, we have really approached local local sponsors um, to sponsor this type of program for students that may not um, be in a school district that's well-funded or able to fund something like this or students that may not have access to, to these types of programs and material. Um, so we really are trying to make it um, more equitable and, and more accessible um, by being creative and by using the multi the multimedia approach, which is everything from phone to texting to images, <laughs> you know, to having mm. um, having your video chat, um, making audio. You know, we create these, we work with them to create these multimedia stories. Um, and, um, you know, stories can be told in so many different aspects. We actually have one module where they become a podcast host. <laughs> and get, oh, to, well. get to kind of have that, yeah, have their own podcast. So, um, so you know, um, I think in the environment we're in, where really don't know what distance learning means, right? Um, what this type of learning is, we can really go back and rely on these types of tools because education has changed, also, right? Um, the um, you know we've gone from formal, more formal learning to now information is everywhere. So a child is learning from so many different, so many more spots and areas 
in informal areas than than we have in the past. So um, really, this approach of community-based looking at um, looking at us as coaches um, and 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 kind of supporting along in that regard, um, but of course basing it on curriculum, basing it on learning outcomes, that has been um, the most effective way for us to continue and to advance. Yeah, fascinating. And you you hit on um, one question I was going to ask this. So um, mm-hmm. this is fully funded by uh, philanthropic or, or people just kind of helping out uh, first question. And the second part of it is what, what's the sort of the age groups that you're working with, the grades you're working with, and, and do you have to deal with and make some adjustments if you have some special needs kids that may need, you know, the assistance and want to utilize your, your program? Sure, and that's a good question. So um, our our programs. So with we overall we call our programs Global Sleepover, and underneath that yeah. we have the Local Heroes Program. So everything that we've done at Global Sleepover has been a combination of um, f- funded philanthropic, like local local funders, um, sponsors. Um, sometimes we do have school districts um, that purchase our programming, our materials, um, and everything kind of in between. We also do individual, um, we'll sell activities and programs individually to um, right now in this environment to to parents, um, a group of parents, for example, or um, a grandparent that wants to sponsor, you know, somebody else. So we try to we try to have an approach where um, we're not fully reliant on, on grant funding or public funding um, because that is also goes in phases to so something where if somebody can afford, um, if a school district can afford, if an individual can afford, we always ask, please sponsor <laughs> um, in that regard too. Um, so it does support that equity aspect um, and, um, I'm forgetting your second question. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I no, about um, um, just what grade um, levels and, uh, yes. and special needs kids, right? Yes, absolutely. So um, grade levels, we are um, K to five uh, at the moment. Um, we have done programs for middle school and, and ninth grade um, activities, but um, it's a different, um, it's it's a little bit st- structured a bit differently. So we have those available, but really K to five is, is where um, we've kind of found our best practices to, to work. Um, and in terms of special needs kids, um, we do have adaptations of our program to support special needs kids. Um, we have an active program um, running for ch- uh, children that are deaf or hard of hearing. Um, and beyond that, um, really, it would be an individual um, an individual customized approach um, in terms of the needs um, and, and the, the timing. So we can support that. Um, it is within our purview. We have experts in that. Um, another area where digital tools, and I'm sure you know this being a parent, um, digital tools are amazing for accessibility and for um, exploring learning in multifaceted, multimedia ways um, where it's not just um, learning based on one-on-one engagement. There are many ways to enhance that learning. So yes, we can support that. Um, It's more of a customized and individual um, based on the needs of the student and the 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 client, if you will. 
Very good. Very good. Um, and, and so I guess, you know, if it's sort of a grassroots thing under the umbrella that you have a global sleepover. Um, mm-hmm. So is there any plans to push? Unfortunately, you know how um, this country is. It's all it's it's lobbying for your agenda. Right. So yeah. uh, is that mm-hmm. something you're going to do to maybe uh, go to Washington to lobby? And, and, and how are you getting the word out, like in terms of media and everything else? Mm-hmm. Um, so we we are ba- our headquarters are based in Washington D.C. <laughs> so, okay, well, so there you go. <laughs> right. So we, we strategically selected D.C. as as our home in that regard. Um, in terms of getting the word out, um, this is this is also where um, past relationships. You know, we are trying to approach um, individual sponsors, um, trying to approach school districts, and and see what their needs are, and see about how we can can build this out so um, these types of um, conversations like we're having this also very much helps um, help us help support us um, because obviously the advertising budget is <laughs> is never or the marketing budget is always <laughs> always the hardest right. um, in something like this but you know I will say that I have a lot of faith in you know we've been doing this a long time right 10 plus years um, we have been working um, in this type of environment working towards social emotional learning working towards um, looking at really how can we break down the, the inequities in education um, for a long time. So we've had so many partners that we have been um, working with uh, who know us. And, you know, people have been reaching back to us um, to ask us different questions, right? How do we do this? Or you've been doing this a long time. How can we how can we work together and support it? And, and I think everybody really sees and understands the need for this type of creativity and innovation in education um, and ensuring that we do continue to provide education. Um, so any thoughts or ideas you might have <laughs> of where we could go and, and, and knock on well, the doors are, would be welcome to. <laughs> well, you certainly, you guys are helping out kids. You certainly, um, um, we'll, we'll make sure that we get your information if we can, get a, a PSA or something on the air on our network. We we'll certainly will do that for you. Uh, I did want one final question I got, and they were asking, you provide some of the resources the kid needs to, to learn. You make the environment safe and fun. Uh, are are there, are you using teachers of your own or how does it work at, or, mm-hmm. or they're using the teachers within that school district or within that school? That's a very good question. So the answer is both. Um, uh, if the if the school district has teachers that would like to be engaged, then we work to provide the teacher with what he or she may need to implement the program. Um, we also can be more involved. We have our own teachers, um, teachers that we've trusted um, and worked with for 10 years now um, who have developed this curriculum and piloted it. So it really would depend on the needs um, of the school district that we are working with. Um, A lot of teachers, um, we have found that some teachers really do appreciate kind of a sequence, you know, here's a pack of activities, here's an activity book, here's what we can provide, and the teachers just have it all set out for them, and then they're able to give it to and work with their students in in their own time and their own way. 
Um, so the the key to all of this, honestly, has been flexibility, right? Um, mm. And in general, you know, we don't learn the same, <laughs> right? We are right. all different. And this is where multimedia has been so powerful. And, you know, some of us are visual learners. Some of us, you know, learn through different experiential means. Um, so if we can... If we can recognize that and offer flexibility in how how we implement these programs, um, then you know we can work with any any end user, any school district, any system. It's just a matter of how we approach it and what decisions we take. So um, that and then to your question, you know we can work with special needs groups. We can work with teachers that may have specific restrictions. Um, we can also work with groups that may not have any restrictions. <laughs> you know, so mm. and, and that's been really hard to to develop that that flexibility and that adaptability, but it is key to um to being able to work with um uh, and offer something that's sustainable, um educational and something that really has an impact. Well, it's it's it sounds like a great idea, and I mean, we we see some of the um, teachers' unions and and some teachers with the concerns to go back to school. We just saw uh, in Florida the uh, one of the stronger teachers' union um, won a, a court decision because they not just the safety of the kids, but obviously the safety of them taking that home that virus if they contracted at home to their family so I, I understand so the need for what you're doing is right now um, and mm-hmm. I certainly appreciate it and like I said let's stay in touch and make sure that I get your uh, information if if you have yeah. a PSA or anything we could put that on our website but thank you so very much for joining us this evening and be safe and we'll talk with you soon yeah. Great. Thank you very much. Really appreciate appreciate your insights and your, your questions today. Thank you. Take care now. Okay. Bye-bye. Right. Bye. Geeta Raj, she is um, part of the Global Sleepover, uh, and, of course, she's an education consultant with the Local Heroes Program. You look that up, um, doing some really good work for lots of kids, and that, that's what it's about. People forget. Everybody's bickering back and forth about everything else, and the kids are always in the middle of something, and this is a good program. Take a break. Come back in just a bit. We thank you for joining us, 646-929-0130, the number to get in touch with us. Press 1 to get on the line. Questions, Pat Nation, you can hit us up on Facebook if you're watching live. See all uh, folks, big shout-out to Big Bruh Jr. out there listening. Appreciate him. And uh, and others out there, Pastor Rojas, appreciate you. 